All right, I'm going to explain um, the book project. The book is in production. It is scheduled to come out in September, and uh, my editor told me two nights ago, maybe even earlier. It, um, the first chapter is on E.B. Tyler. The second chapter is on James Frazier. The third chapter is on Evans Pritchard. The fourth chapter is on Mary Douglas. The fifth chapter is on Victor Turner and Edith Turner, uh, which is, I'm essentially presenting to you today that the, the Victor Turner half of that last chapter, um, just to get the time down. Um, if you're interested in, in Edie, I would be love to talk to you about her and her work, and my chapter covers that extensively, but I don't have time here to do both. Um, so, um, okay, I brought the, the, the website thing. Uh, for the book, I'm not trying to get you to read it. I just want you to buy it, okay? So, <laughs> um, I, I, my, my standard way of doing scholarship is to refer to my subjects by their last name. But because this chapter is about two people who use the last name Turner, um, I say Vic and Edie in the chapter, which is not, again, normal for me, but it is in this case. And Edie has told me I can call her Edie, so um, um, I have a little bit of warrant for that, but I, I'll let you know on that. Uh, and finally, as I said, I am a historian. Uh, this is my first ever anthropological um, audience, um, and it occurred to me very late in doing this that there are lots of words in my paper that you probably hear all the time that I've never heard anybody pronounce in my life. So if I say it completely wrong, please don't laugh out loud, and um, uh, we'll, we'll get on with it. All right. So having said all that, I'm really going to read a paper to you now, um, but I will look up occasionally to demonstrate my social skills, so that'll be all right. Okay. On January 30th, 1943, Edith Davis married Victor Turner at a registry office in Oxford. The choice of a secular ceremony was at least partially motivated by their defiant unwillingness to let the faithful even charitably surmise that they might be Christians. It certainly rattled her devout Anglican parents, which again was probably part of the plan. In the 30 years since his death in 1983, Edith Turner has been recognized as a noted anthropologist in her own right and has developed new theories, convictions, and practices. Victor Turner, uh, he was born in 1920, died in 1983, had a Glaswegian childhood until his parents divorced. Then at the age of 11, he moved with his mother to Bournemouth. He was estranged from his father thereafter. When, as an adult, Vic pleaded for his grant for field work to include the expense of his family accompanying him, he wrote poignantly, the absence of a father is no good for kids, as I know from experience. His mother, Violet, had been a founding member of the Scottish National Players, and she instilled in him an appreciation of drama. Unsurprisingly, in 1930s Britain, it was unlikely that a divorcee actress was going to create a life for herself and her son in which the church had a significant part. Instead, Violet dabbled in spiritualism. In short, Vic was not raised religious. Instead, he would join the Young Communist League. In 1939, he began reading literature at University College London. With the outbreak of war, he declared himself to be a conscientious objector, but not, of course, on religious grounds. His war work was therefore in a non-combatant position with a bomb disposal squad on the home front. In this band of brothers, his best friend was John Bate, Vic wrote to him in May 1942, musing self-reflectively that he was not a Christian, but rather knew himself to be skeptical and pagan and uncompromisingly opposed to authorities and institutions. Edith Davis was born in Ely in 1921. Both her parents had served as church missionary society missionaries in India. Edith's teen years were marked by defiance and rebellion against her parents. 
She admits in retrospect to a bad attitude and being a, quote, bitchy daughter. For their part, her parents ran an oppressive regime of thought control and were expecting a high degree of conformity. The result was alienation and estrangement. Edie would go on to embrace communism for the thorough way that it had wrung clean of religion, and Nietzsche for his forthright rejection of the Holy Spirit. And she too joined the Young Communist League. Edie and Vic met on the 12th of June, 1942, when she was just a few days shy of her 21st birthday. They had a sweet romance and were married six months later. Violet pegged her daughter-in-law as a bohemian, and Edie came to glory in this description of their young married life, making much of the fact that their first home was a gypsy caravan. Moreover, as pacifists, religious skeptics, and communists, they even joined a Marxist reading group and sold the Daily Worker, their defiance of respectable commensality was more than merely superficial. Their son Frederick was born before the war was over, and two other children followed in this period of their lives, Robert and Irene. The Turners were in the habit of pushing the children in a pram the four miles from their caravan to the nearest public library, which was in Rugby. It was there that Vic discovered Margaret Mead's coming of age in Samoa. This led on to the British anthropologist A.R. Redcliffe Brown, it was while reading Radcliffe Brown that Vic found his vocation, announcing simply, I'm going to be an anthropologist. He returned to University College London, but gained permission to shift from the comparative literature course to Daryl Ford's Department of Anthropology. During this period of their lives, the Turners became Communist Party members. Max Gluckman was seeking to build up the new Department of Anthropology at Manchester. When he made a visit to London, Gluckman saw Vic's potential, and he promised him a grant if he would come to the northwest of England to do his postgraduate work there, and all for the Turners were happy to accept. Gluckman also had Marxist sympathies, as well as being non-religious, and the original plan had been for Vic to do fieldwork focused on the economic life of the Mamboe in what is now Zambia. In a momentous last-minute reconsideration, however, Gluckman somehow divined Vic's fascination with ritual and telegraphed, suggest you change to Dambu tribe, northwestern Providence, much malaria, yellow fever, plenty of ritual. <laughs> Vic did secure funding for their entire family to share in the experience. Can you still get funding for your family to go on field work or not, I wonder? Uh, <laughs> Uh, the Turners undertook fieldwork among the Dambu of what was then northern Rhodesia from December 1950 through February 1952, and then for another year from mid-1953. They brought Marxist literature with them into the field, frantically hiding it when white visitors stopped in unannounced lest they should be exposed as communists and thereby lose the cooperation of colonial authorities. In terms of anthropological method and theory, Vic endeavored to follow the prescribed structuralist path. I filled my notebooks with genealogies. I made village hut plans and collected census material. I prowled around to catch the rare and unwary kinship term. Yet a time of questioning was looming ahead. And so back to the department at Manchester. Vic would participate in the seminar as a postgraduate student, be awarded his PhD in 1955, and then remain as a faculty member, securing the position of lecturer in 1958, being promoted to senior lecturer in 1960, before finally leaving for a professorship at Cornell in 1963. There was a pulsing desire in the department to do something distinctive that would set them apart from more established centers for the study of anthropology in Britain, such as Oxford and Cambridge. 
It was therefore gratifying when Mary Douglas, an Oxford-trained member of the faculty at University College London, announced in a 1959 review of a book by William Watson that it is evidently time to salute a school of anthropology. The anthropologists gathered around Gluckman have therefore gone down in the literature as the Manchester School. Cohesion was self-consciously fostered through shared social activities, including obligatory outings to Manchester United matches. A leftish political perspective added a common outlook on life. Several members of the department were communists, and the Turners would eventually become card-carrying communists in Manchester, in whom party officials saw growing potential as speakers and organizers. As to the actual anthropology, the Manchester School's greatest distinctive was its use of the extended case study method. Another was an emphasis on process, which served as a corrective to the static assumptions of structuralism. It seems fair to say that Dr. Victor Turner became the star exemplar of the Manchester School. Both of the Turners would later express dissatisfaction with his PhD thesis and the resulting monograph, Schism and Continuity in an African Society, 1957, seeing it as straightjacketed by the conventions of structuralism and as failing to let ritual breathe on its own terms. Gluckman told his protege both to put in things that Vic thought were unimportant and to leave out or take out material that he was passionate about, but this seems to have been the kindly advice of someone on his side in wanting to make sure that his work was widely acknowledged to be successful rather than a reflection of the narrowness of Gluckman's own views. Even Edie, who was particularly scathing about such restrictions, concedes that as the sole provider for a family of five, it was essential that Vic play it safe at this early stage of his career. Vic himself reflected on the pressures placed upon young anthropologists in a way that was surely a refracted comment on his own experience. So this is a block quote, so I don't know if you can still take your family on the field. We'll see if this part of his experience still holds true or not. Uh, young anthropologists. Their best thoughts may be tabooed and their integrity undermined by city-state shibboleths in the way of concepts and styles to which they must render at least lip service to obtain support from nationally and locally prestigious departmental faculty. Students often seem to suffer from the guilt of self-betrayal, which pursues them even into their field work in far places. I am sure this is not an optimal condition for field work, for they have to process their field work into PhD dissertations acceptable by their sponsoring departments. Still, if the goal was to win approbation, it worked. Few would be so purist as Edie, who takes the PhD thesis being described by its examiners as brilliantly orthodox, as shameful proof that it was a fundamentally compromised piece of work. In a pioneering study of the Manchester School, Richard P. Werbner described schism and continuity as the Manchester mainstream's high watermark. Likewise, Adam Cooper, when assessing the work of the Manchester School, found schism and continuity to be the most satisfying of these studies and in a class of its own. The Manchester-style advance that it made beyond Oxford-style structuralism was in the introduction of what Turner called social dramas, his own dashing iteration on the extended case study method. In May 1958, all five Turners were received into the communion of the Roman Catholic Church. Members of the department responded with open opposition. Bill Watson and his wife Pamela were also card-carrying communists and atheists. Edie remembers them both ranting at her and Vic, with Bill pronouncing bluntly, You've, you're betraying us. Fellow Manchester School anthropologist Ronald Frankenberg recalls that the Turners were bitterly blamed and criticized and subjected to hostile semi-isolation. 
This reaction was no doubt partially grounded simply in the disdain felt for religious convictions in general and for Catholicism in particular by people who were personally Marxists and agnostics. To this was added, however, a sense that they had been painstakingly crafting a common cohesive identity that had now been shattered. It is not too much to say that there was at least a fear that the conversion of the Turners might have destroyed the Manchester School. Ian Cunninson, an anthropologist who had joined the team in 1955, seemed to sense that the vehemence of the department's reaction looks odd in retrospect and attempted to explain it. Quote, Max Gluckman was so intent on the idea of Manchester as a unified school with one general mood of thought and one general way of analyzing society that this change in Vic's position really brought that to an end. And this is why we all viewed it with such consternation at the time. Edie indicates that the cleavage over Catholicism was what prompted them ultimately to look for a new academic home. Quote, so this is Edie's voice. It would be hard to fully explain or understand the reaction we got in the Manchester department. A lot of our friends were card-carrying members of the Communist Party, and almost everyone in anthropology was a left-leaning atheist. Joining the Catholic Church was probably the worst thing we could have done. It didn't end friendship, but it caused tensions with some people. In any case, we wanted to get out. But why did they do it? A prominent source for answering this question is Edie's reflections from decades later. These are very much shaped by her position by that time in which a tangible spiritual realm which envelops different religious traditions looms large. Both Turners agree that what happened in Africa refused to stay in Africa. Witnessing and participating in Danbu rituals changed them, even if the full impact was delayed. They make this point both in terms of theory and methodology. Structuralism and Marxism did not adequately account for these rituals, and in terms of their own religious beliefs. Therefore, while primitive beliefs and practices made it impossible for E.B. Tyler to accept Christian claims, in a complete reversal, traditional African religion made it possible for the Turners to take Christianity seriously once again. Vic testified that when he witnessed a Catholic priest presiding at Mass, I felt in the texture of his performance something of the same deep contact with the human condition tinged with transcendence that I'd experienced in Central Africa when I attended rituals presided over by dedicated ritual specialists. Or, as he reflected back some 18 years after his Catholic turn, I have not been immune to the symbolic powers I have evoked in field investigation. After many years as an agnostic and mono monistic materialist, I learned from the Danbu that ritual and its symbolism are not merely epiphenomena or disguises of deeper social and psychological processes, but have ontological value. I became convinced that religion is not merely a toy of the race's childhood, to be discarded at a nodal point of scientific and technological development, but is really at the heart of the matter. In Edith Turner's retelling of the specific sequence of events that led up to their conversion, she and Vic decided to attend various churches as a bit of local fieldwork. They worked their way through a range of denominations. For example, one Sunday they joined the Quakers, but uh, he quipped in a conversation with me laughingly, it was a bad day and nobody got the spirit. Then one Advent Sunday in 1957, they decided to attend a Unitarian chapel. This plan was thwarted by a confusion about the meeting time, and they found themselves in the flow of others heading for another church, which would turn out to be a Roman Catholic one. Quote, they passed, and then in the empty street, I felt a hand take my shoulder and pro propel me down the alley toward the church. 
Vic felt this too. I looked around, but there was no one doing any shoving. When the words of consecration were pronounced over the cup, Edie shivered with the realization that she had found the Holy Grail. There are other clues, however, which set this decision in a different light. Another way of explaining this change would involve Vic embarking on an intellectual quest which involved a program of reading and a concerted examination of the claims of Christianity in general and of Catholicism in particular. This version can be glimpsed even in a comment by Edie herself. Quote, I went the way of Vic being a Catholic. He got the sense of it first and I did afterwards. Although when I was given the original sense, it was very strong to me. Here, Edie is not portraying a moment when they both, without premeditation, stumbled upon the faith and found themselves simultaneously nudged into it, but rather a journey that Vic went on first. This also aligns with Ronald Frankenberg's recollection that he and Vic were studying the Bible together in the Catholic Ronald Knox's new translation of the Vulgate already in 1956. Most of all, the research for this study has led to the discovery of a new primary source in regards to this question. Victor Turner's own statement of his reasons for converting in a letter to Max Gluckman, dated 7 July 1959. From a historian's perspective, this source has the advantage of being a contemporary one. In other words, unlike Edie's recollections from decades later, this is something that we have from the actual period of time. Nevertheless, it should not be handled uncritically either, not, not least because it is an apologia pro vita sua for a very important audience of one. For example, Turner offers a convoluted and unconvincing reflection on how he thinks that the Catholics at the Oxford Institute lean to the heresy of Gnosticism, which is clearly calculated to reassure Gluckman that he is still a Manchester School man and has, quote, been totally uninfluenced by Oxford anthropology or anthropologists. Nevertheless, the letter is striking for the way that it offers exclusively intellectual reasons. Its thesis from first to last is that Turner has reasoned his way to the Catholic faith. This begins with the general question of the existence of God. So here's a block quote. I became a theist because I could see no rational grounds for making an act of faith in the non-existence of God. It seemed more reasonable to hypothecate a purposeful somebody behind the structure of the universe than a purposeless something. In fact, even in my communist days, I could not meet the argument I posed to myself that if materialism were true, our thoughts are the mere byproduct of material processes uninfluenced by reason. Hence, if materialism be right, our thoughts are determined by irrational processes, and therefore the thoughts which lead to the conclusion that materialism is right have no relation to reason. Then came the case for Christianity in particular, and Catholicism with its historical claim to be the authentic Church of Christ in the world. Another block quote. I became a Christian, and hence, as Ronnie Frankenberg said, a Catholic, by reading the New Testament as a series of social dramas. In the course of this reading, it came home to me that unless Jesus of Nazareth was what he claimed to be, i.e. God, he was either a lunatic, a criminal, or a simpleton. The manner of his life and teaching, and especially the manner of his death, convinced me that he was none of these. Once I believed in the divinity of Jesus, the rest followed, in a perfectly rational way. Catholicism is a rationalistic religion, and the Catholic claims to demonstrate by reason the existence of God, the deity of Christ, and the authority of the church, I find perfectly valid. This passage is fascinating for multiple reasons. First, it cites the Bible as the prompt for his Christian conversion. Secondly, it neatly puts his dazzling contribution to Manchester School anthropology, the social drama, in the service of this cause. 
Thirdly, it rests on the so-called trilemma, liar, lunatic, our Lord, an apologetic argument that the Anglican literary critic C.S. Lewis had made famous in a wartime radio broadcast which had become part of his popular classic, Mere Christianity, 1952. Turner addresses a variety of other issues in this letter that he anticipated Gluckman might raise as objections, including the question of the authority of the church, but for each in turn, his defense of the faith always runs along the same lines. I think it's important to use our reason about such matters. The Turners took to their adopted faith wholeheartedly with the zeal of new converts. An obvious outward and visible sign of this was that they conformed to the church's teaching on birth control. Edie recalls, Vic and I complied, we obeyed all the commandments, we threw away the condoms. Ironically, as atheists, they had adhered to such restrictions in reverse. Gluckman had made it a condition of allowing the family to accompany Vic to Africa that no children were to be conceived on the field. <laughs> the first fruits of this now Catholic couple was a daughter named Lucy, who was born in 1959. She had Down syndrome and only lived for a few months. As will be seen, however, in this author's view, Lucy had her part to play in the development of the anthropology of the Turners. Over the course of time, two more boys followed, Alex and Rory, making them from mid-April 1963 onwards a family of seven. As the decades rolled by, neither Turner felt a need to maintain every enthusiastic notion of what it might mean to be a dutiful Catholic, which initially occurred to them in these early years. While abandoning Marxism for good, Vic would nevertheless find his way back to, a, to more left of center politics, although for a time, and this is a quote from his son, he was something of an ultramontane G.K. Chesterton conservative. Still, for the rest of his life, Victor Turner would be a fairly conservative Catholic in ecclesial and theological terms. Edie's testimony is that he remained obstinately Catholic. This would appear to be a word of approbation in the lexicon of this lifelong rebel, and she also praises the Irish for remaining obstinately Catholic in the face of persecution under Protestant British rule. In more traditional language, Edith Turner and their son Frederick have also described Vic as a pious Catholic. A tangible manifestation of his conservative ecclesial outlook was, for, was that for all the decades which followed between his conversion and his death, Vic would receive communion only in a Roman Catholic church. He had tremendous respect and affection for the Anglican clergyman, the Reverend Brian Dupre, but he still refused on principle to receive the Eucharist when Dupre was presiding, even when it was at the Turner's own son Robert's wedding service, and Dupre was also the father of the bride. Likewise, one can see this theological vigilance as late as 1981, just two years before his death, when their interest in the anthropology of performance led the Turners to have their students stage a contemporary Virginian wedding. Vic was aware that as a true marriage is a sacrament, one could end up playing with fire, and therefore he carefully established a frame of make-believe so as to avoid any spiritual impropriety, quote, in terms at least of Catholic theology. Perhaps most notably, Victor Turner also became a public champion of the traditional Latin ritual in opposition to the modernizing of the mass initiated at Vatican II. In an article in the Benedictine journal Worship in 1972, he practically preached a crusade against the reformers. The Philistines are upon us. Instead, he passionately defended the old forms. It is a mistake to think that the archaic is the fossilized or surpassed. The archaic can be as contemporary as nuclear physics. 
Returning to the same confessional venue four years later, he was even more forceful. Hilariously, the work of the council meant that he could no longer use the ethnographic present, but rather was reduced to construction such as on which the celebrant stands while he says mass, or did until recently. This article ends by more or less sounding the alarm against ecclesial treason. We must not dynamite the liturgical rock of Peter. In the 1970s and beyond, both of the Turners would commend the spirituality of Catholic pilgrims precisely because it was an area where the old faith continued on without being marred by modernizing efforts. It should also be noted that beginning in 1957, if not earlier, Vic became a voracious reader of Christian authors and serious theological literature. He was fond of the Catholic novelists and intellectuals of the 20th century, Waugh, Green, Chesterton, Knox, and so forth, but also read leading Christian intellectuals beyond the confines of his new communion, such as the Methodist Anglican historian Herbert Butterfield. Moreover, his reading ranged across the centuries of Christian thought, not only the great mystics, but also weighty theologians such as Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, and he continued to read the Bible. Henceforth, Victor Turner's anthropology would be profoundly influenced by his Christian faith, albeit in some publications more than others. The first fruits of this new spiritually infused perspective was a contribution to the Rose Livingston papers, Tiamba the White Spirit, 1962. It is an astonishing document. Tiamba was a ritual of initiation into secret knowledge for those seeking healing. What was revealed in the rite was, in Frazierian fashion, the mystical death and rebirth of a god, Kavula. Turner had discussed Chayamba in Schism and Continuity, but as a Christian, he now found that treatment reductionistic and publicly repented of it. Another block quote. At one time, I employed a method of analysis derived essentially from Durkheim via Radcliffe Brown. But I found that ritual action tended thereby to be reduced to a mere species of social action and the qualitative distinctions between religious and secular custom and behavior came to be obliterated. The ritual symbol, I found, had its own formal principle. It could be no more reduced to or explained by any particular category of secular behavior or be regarded as a resultant of many kinds of secular behavior than an amino acid molecular chain could be explained by the properties of the atoms interleaked by it. Now Turner ferociously denounced Fraser and Durkheim by name for their efforts to explain away religious phenomena in naturalistic terms. Here's a fairly fierce uh, quote from Turner again, I think. Like Captain Ahab, such scholars seek to destroy that which centrally menaces and wounds their self-sufficiency, i.e. the belief in a deity. And like Ahab, they suffer shipwreck without transfixing the quick of their intended victim. Instead, he insisted religion is not determined by anything other than itself. Moreover, he repeatedly spoke of nature versus grace and natural religion versus revealed religion in ways that make it clear for those who have ears to hear that he is claiming that the Dambu, that the Dambu, claiming for the Dambu authentic spiritual insights of the former category. In fact, he later republished Tiamba the White Spirit as half of a book entitled Revelation and Divination in Danbu Ritual, 1975. Writing for a Catholic audience in the Benedictine Journal Worship, Turner confided that he had chosen this title in order to proclaim his own spiritual convictions. Quote, Theologians have long used the term natural revelation to signify the manifestation of divine truths obtained by the use of human natural faculties alone. I am personally convinced from my experience of Chayamba in its social setting, 
where it made for reconciliation among former rivals and induced a pervasive mood of mild happiness that the ritual and symbolism of Chiamber were just such a natural revelation. Hence the title of my book about it. Chiamba the White Spirit does not reflect Edie's later generous religious pluralism, but rather Vic's, Vic leavened it with orthodox proclamations of the superiority of the true faith. For example, when drawing a comparison between this traditional African ritual and the story of Moses and the burning bush, as recorded in Exodus chapter 3, he cautioned reverently, the difference, of course, is great. The historical Jehovah cannot be compared with the woodland demigod. And again, of course, the killing of Kavula is hardly cognate with Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Even more explicit is this affirmation of the historicity of Christ's resurrection. But if there are many points of resemblance, there is a crucial difference between the Christian and pagan examples. For the Christian, the resurrection is a historical event. Fact and symbol are one. His faith is typographically emphasized with even pronouns about Jesus being capitalized, for example, himself repeatedly, while Kaluva must be content with being a god of the lowercase variety. Then there is the exuberant overflowing of Vic's Christian reading. A leading Catholic intellectual of the 20th century, Gilson, is deployed to explain the philosophical theology of Thomas Aquinas, which is in turn meant to illuminate the religious thought of the Danube. The Bible is repeatedly quoted at length and from the official English translation for Catholics, the Doye version. Butterfield's Christianity and History is put to work even though it had only been published a few years earlier. And the entire monograph ends with an aphorism from G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man, the import of which is that the Danube are closer for, to spiritual truth and reality than secular moderns in the West. Moreover, Turner's life of worship is now a point of reference that seems so obvious to him as to be almost inevitable or irreplaceable. Quote, subjectively, the nearest one can get to it is to say that the feeling tone resembled that among a group of Catholics just after the Easter vigil service, which ends the tragic drama of Passiontide. Perhaps most substantively of all for the purposes at hand, this monograph on traditional African ritual also provides a close reading of the canonical gospels and a profound med meditation on the theological meaning of Christ's resurrection. In the year following the publication of Chiamba, the White Spirit, Victor Turner was offered and accepted a professorship at Cornell University. He resigned from Manchester and the whole family left the area, taking up temporary accommodation in Hastings. But then there was uncertainty regarding their United States visas, as the Turners had been members of the Communist Party in good standing before renouncing their affiliation in 1957. In short, they were betwixt and between. No longer on the faculty of Manchester, but not yet established on that of Cornell, having said their goodbyes to their British colleagues, but not yet any hellos to American ones. It was in this context that Victor Turner developed his celebrated theory of liminality. Way back in 1909, a similar work on rites to passage had identified a three-phase process, separation, margin, or the limin, and aggregation. Turner came to see that this middle liminal period had propentious power for illuminating human experience. It is a time outside the standard structures. For example, a traditional rite of initiation into adulthood might have a period of seclusion in the middle that could last for a month or longer. During that liminal phase, one is neither a boy nor a man, neither a girl nor a woman. Turner published an article heralding this theory in 1964, which then became a chapter in his The Forest of Symbols, 1967. 
the book's coming fast apace now. In the following year appeared the Drums of Affliction. The Ritual Process Structure and Antistructure was published in 1969. This was destined to become not only the most well-received uh, and influential work in his entire over, but also a classic of the discipline and an inspiration beyond it. Once again, Turner denounced the atheistically un underpinned reductionism of such influential theorists, naming uh, again both Tyler and Fraser, as well as others such as Freud and Durkheim. Quote, most of these thinkers have taken up the implicitly theological position of trying to explain or explain away religious phenomena as the product of psychological or sociological causes of the most diverse and even conflicting types, denying to them any preterhuman origin. A key concept developed in the ritual process was communitas, a spontaneously arising phenomenon where a group of people begin to relate to one another as just fellow human beings without regards to any differences of status and experience mutual love and interconnectedness. Liminality fosters this. Zambu males in the seclusion lodge, for example, by enduring together a common experience which places them on an egalitarian plane, forge deep bonds of affection with one another. A related concept given in the subtitle was anti-structure. Indeed, the Turners could use communitas as synonymous with social anti-structure. There was a mischievousness to Vic's development of the notion of anti-structure. He had been persistently attempting to break out of the confines of the traditional British anthropology of structuralism, and discovering something dubbed anti-structure was a playful way for him to declare, there are more things in heaven and earth, Radcliffe Brown, than are dreamt of in your anthropology. Liminality, to reiterate, is a time outside structures where status, roles, and hierarchies are set aside. A section in the ritual process was entitled Hippies, Communitas, and the Power of the Weak. It argued that hippies gave up status and position in the social structure. They dressed like outcasts, askew careerism, and so on, to experience the spontaneous love and connectedness of communitas. This celebration of anti-structure was so with the zeitgeist that the book became enormously popular with students in the early 1970s and developed something of a cult status in the more bookish wing of the counterculture. Still, while some of Vic's anthropological insights were indeed code for the counterculture, they were also code for Christianity. In a theological frame, the difference between structure and anti-structure was a difference in Augustinian thought between the city of man and the city of God. Turner repeatedly makes this connection explicitly. The Christian categories piled up. Communitas was Eden. It was the millennial reign of Christ. It was the unio mystica so emphasized in medieval spirituality. It was Pentecost. Most of all, it was what Jesus Christ referred to as the kingdom of God. The Turners, like John the Baptist, were continually announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Victor Turner was sometimes willing to spell out how his anthropology could be transposed into a Catholic key. Quote, a Catholic must think here of the hyperliminal moment of the Eucharist elevation when bread is transubstantiated into the host, whose consumption converts parishioners of diverse social structural attributes into the single mystical body of the church, and a moment of pure existential communitas is realized. Even when they were not made explicit, these analogs were nevertheless alive in Turner's own mind. In 1968, Vic left Cornell for the University of Chicago, taking a position in its famed Committee on Social Thought. 
During the Chicago years, the Turners became pioneers in the field of pilgrimage studies. This is where baby Lucy helps to shape the story. A few months after her death in 1960, the Turners went on pilgrimage to Ellsford Priory, a place made holy by its association with St. Simon Stock. It would appear to have been a response to their grief. At least in hindsight, Edie became convinced that a wonder worker there, Father Malachi, performed a miracle that enabled them to have healthy children again. As a result, in the fullness of time, Alex was born. The point to emphasize here, however, is that the Turners were going to sacred sites as a spiritual practice before it ever occurred to them to do research on this phenomenon. Eventually, Vic would decide that Catholic pilgrimage was a way for his anthropology to move, quote, from tribal to world religions, and more generally from small scale to mass societies. Moreover, he had been searching for a site of liminality in Catholicism. Its rites of passage did not offer a significant amount of time in a betwixt and between stage. A pilgrimage, however, was a form of spirituality that was outside of the normal structures and that could produce communitas. Once again, it is crucial to understand that the Turners were Christian believers undertaking a spiritual discipline for their own personal edification. Edie hints that that in some ways the scholarly project was respectable cover in intellectual circles for an unfashionably traditional form of piety. Quote, it was almost embarrassing to say one was going to Lourdes unless one was doing research. She is emphatic that they were going to these holy places to worship. Vic's sly way of admitting this was to reflect that perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he was an observing participant rather than the standard anthropologist's identity as a participant observer. In 1974, Victor Turner's Dramas, Fields, and Metaphors was published. It demonstrated how he was learning to blend this devotional practice into his anthropological theory by including a chapter on pilgrimage as social processes. Then there are two remarkable chapters which revel in ecclesiastical history. One is on Father Heidelgo and the Mexican Revolution. Turner reads these events as a social drama, recapitulating the life of Christ. The other such chapter is a brilliant exposition of the social drama between Henry II and Thomas Beckett. Vic freely confesses that he first became interested in Beckett's violent death because his shrine became an important site of pilgrimage. Once again, Beckett is shown to have lived the Via Crucis and to have consciously brought his life story into conformity with the Christian root paradigm of martyrdom. The book was as fierce as ever when pushing back at anti-Christian theorists going so far as to accuse Durkheim and Comte of a curious egoilatry. The full flowering of this new area of interest, however, was Image and Pilgrimage in Christian Culture, 1978, the only book where Victor Turner and Edith Turner were named as co-authors. Although it also delves into ecclesiastical history, much of the book is informed by their fieldwork as observing participants at shrines such as Lourdes, Knock, and Guadalupe. For the purpose at hand, one of the arresting things about this book is how deeply engaged it is with Christian theology. In that sense, it is one long confession of faith. The Turners first state in the preface that they are Catholics, and then the rest of the book is written in a Catholics believe mode, creating a kind of syllogism in which the reader is invited to deduce that the theological claims that are being presented are ones which the authors themselves affirm. 
The text continually traces practices and beliefs back to biblical warrant, to the life of Christ, to theological formulas from the early ecumenical councils, and to catechismal material. While the Turners were surely right to claim that the faithful are more theologically literate than scholars probably imagine, the reader would nevertheless be forgiven for assuming that the Turners are moving beyond the articulated knowledge of their ordinary informants when they start referring to the doctrine of the hypostatic union, the Council of Ephesus 431, and the like. It is apparent that Vic reveled in such careful doctrinal formulations because they interested him personally as an intellectually curious, thoughtful Christian. Uh, it, this certainly does not interest Edie today, and so it's hard for me to know whether it interested her at the time or not. Uh, she's explicitly re repudiated it in a preface to this book um, written, I don't know, maybe about seven or eight years ago, uh, where she says these these theological hair splitting doesn't interest me. You know, it, it's not important. Uh, uh, it, it's clear to me that it was important to Vic, and whether it was important to her at the time or not, I don't know. It is apparent that Vic reveled in such careful doctrinal formulations because they interested him personally as an intellectually curious, thoughtful Christian. Theologically infused, though it was, image and pilgrimage made its mark in the discipline of anthropology. The secular Jewish anthropologist Alan Mornis observed in 1992 the only significant theory of pilgrimage that has been put forward to date is that of Victor Turner. He is owed credit for bringing pilgrimage to the forefront of anthropological consideration. Uh, he, of course, said is that of Victor and Edith Turner, um, the co-author. To move to some culminative comments on Victor Turner's over, biblical and theological themes pulse through his writings from his conversion right to his death. One text of scripture from his beloved Gospel of John became a kind of proof text for his post-structuralist anthropology. The wind of the spirit bloweth where it listeth, John 3.8. This insight often recurs in the writings of both Turners. Likewise, Vic would often counter materialistic tendencies with Christ's words, man shall not live by bread alone, Matthew 4.4. 4. Here, for example, is an impassioned case. Quote, positivism and rationalism have reduced ritual and its symbolism to scarcely more than the reflection or expression of aspects of social structure, direct or veiled or projected. The liminal and the ritual which guards it are proofs of the existence of powers antithetical to those generating and maintaining profane structures of all types. Proofs that man does not live by bread alone. Vic's Writings are also marbled with references to theological thinkers, even writers that many scholars might use for other aspects of their work, such as perennial favorites Blake, Kierkegaard, Dante, and Buber, are clearly often being drawn upon as spiritual voices. Turner even took advantage of the interdisciplinary nature of the Committee on Social Thought to teach seminars at the University of Chicago on Dante, Blake, and Kierkegaard. The mystic Jakob Burma also reappears across Turner's writings, as do a great cloud of witnesses from St. Benedict to St. Francis de Sales and beyond. Augustine and Aquinas are the more formal theologians from ages past most drawn upon, and Pascal belongs in this account somewhere, perhaps the kind of D'Artagnan alongside the three musketeers of Blake, Dante, and Kierkegaard. There are also, of course, references to 20th century theologians, such as Pierre Delhard de Chardin, 
Most striking, however, was Vick's use of the Roman Catholic intellectual, theologian, mystic, and apologist Friedrich von Hugo. In an article published in the last few years of Turner's life, tellingly in the Harvard Theological Review in 1981, he ended with a long passage from von Hugo's theological treatise, Eternal Life, 1913. Turner sheepishly admits that this sudden turn to the explicitly doctrinal at the end of his essay was a kind of leap of faith that some might find a non sequitur, but that those who have ears to hear might discern to be a capstone of my argument. The import of this concluding spiritual meditation is that the timeless quality of ritual allows human beings to apprehend what is truly eternal. Turner also, Turner also wrote for confessional publications, not only the Benedictine Journal Worship, but also the International Roman Catholic Theological Journal Concilium. Indeed, Victor Turner was so comfortable with advanced theological reflection that he could endearingly deploy it in the naive assumption that it can serve as a clarifying analogy. To take an extreme example, he imagined that his readers will understand the neurology of the human brain better once he has referenced the double procession of the Holy Spirit as articulated in the filioque clause of the Western Creed. We have not thus far belabored just how imminent Victor Turner became. Still, that has been apparent already in what has gone before. He was the star of the Manchester School. Already in 1965, he was awarded the Royal Anthropological Institute's Rivers Medal. Then he was headhunted by the Ivy League with a professorship at Cornell. Next came the still more prestigious Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, where his department chair, Saul Bellow, won the Nobel Prize for Literature during Vic's tenure. By that time, Vic had a world reputation as a leading anthropologist and a celebrity intellectual. He became the kind of figure whose name added cachet to even the most elite institutions, serving, for example, on the board of the Smithsonian. All of this led to the University of Virginia making Vic an offer he could not refuse. In 1977, he took up an appointment there as Kinnan Professor of Anthropology and Religion. The, uh, Virginia was intent on being able to boast that they had made they had this famous world-class scholar on their faculty and were therefore willing to offer him whatever he wanted. Not only was he excused from all committee and administrative work, <laughs> isn't that wonderful, but his path was made exceedingly smooth in many crafty ways. He had the uncanny ability, for example, to teach two courses at the same time, always on a Thursday night. So basically, they, they, they gave two different course names to it, and students sat in the same room and heard the same thing. And that counted for his full teaching load. So um, if you're looking for a clever plan, suggest it to your uh, uh, department chair. Okay, we have two paragraphs left. So if you've been drifting away, we engage for the exciting conclusion. Much has happened since Vic's death to confirm his enduring place as a major contributor to the field of anthropology. A tribute to him in Anthropologica observed, the caliber of his work was so outstanding that his name was eventually entered into dictionaries and encyclopedias as a standard reference. Lest his status as a public intellectual might cause people to forget what his reputation was built upon, Mary Douglas reiterated in, in an obituary, it is important to record that he was an unrivaled ethnographer. The Society for Humanistic Anthropology perpetuates his memory through the Victor Turner Prize in Ethnographic Writing. 
His own books continued, continued to be in print, to be read, discussed, and to serve as a standard point uh, for new studies. And some of his work has been translated into a variety of languages. Moreover, a whole stream of scholarship continues that focuses on Victor Turner's anthropology. There are at least a handful of books with Victor Turner's name in the title um, and more that are substantially interacting with his work or dedicated to him, etc. Victor Turner had a heart attack in October 1983 and was hospitalized for a week. He was at home on the 18th of December 1983 when a second one killed him. During his period in hospital that autumn, the comforting ministry, ministry of, quote, the pastor of our church, that's uh, Edie's words, uh, Father Carl Nero, meant a great deal to both of the Turners. Vic had been a practicing Catholic and regular communicant from 1958 onwards. Edie emphasized that Vic lived his whole spiritual life in the Roman Catholic Church from conversion to the very end, last rites and everything. His solemn requiem mass was held in the local congregation where the Turners were faithful members, Holy Comforter Church, Charlottesville, Virginia. The readings included the great English poet and Jesuit priest, Gerard Manley Hopkins, as well as selections of Holy Scripture from both Testaments, Ezekiel, St. Matthew's Gospel, Vic's beloved Sermon on the Mount, and Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, the famous chapter 13 on true love. Fittingly, natural revelation also was allowed to have its due. There was a gathering at the Turner's home that same evening, as if Vic's storied midnight seminar were to meet one last time, and they mourned in traditional African ways such as ritual dance. Some students had even made a Zambu funeral mask. Unlike such reenactments in the past, however, the loss this time was painfully real. There was no need to create a frame of make-believe. Thank you. Thank you.